Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. I'm Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon once preached by Charles Spurgeon. In its written form, this message is a part of a collection donated to the Chapel Library by Perry Boardman, who in 2001 created a 63-volume set of Spurgeon sermons known as Spurgeon's Gems. That collection is also available online at www.spurgeongems.com. This and all of the sermons in this collection is used by permission of the Chapel Library that you can contact at chapel at mountzion.org. Today's message is number seven and eight in the series. Actually, we'll take two days to do it. It's entitled Christ Crucified. A sermon delivered on Sabbath morning, February 11, 1855, at Exeter Hall in Strand. And the passage of scripture that Charles Spurgeon uses is, But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. That's 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 and 24. What contempt has God poured upon the wisdom of this world? How has he brought it to naught and made it appear as nothing? He has allowed it to work out its own conclusions and prove its own folly. Men boasted that they were wise, they said that they could find out God to perfection, and in order that their folly might be refuted once and forever, God gave them, gave them the opportunity of doing so. He said, worldly wisdom, I will try you. You say that you are mighty, that your intellect is vast and comprehensive, that your eye is keen, that you can unravel all secrets. Now behold, I try you. I give you one great problem to solve. Here is the universe. Stars make its canopy, fields and flower adorn it, and the floods roll o'er its surface. My name is written therein. The invisible things of God may be clearly seen in the things which are made. Philosophy, I give you this problem. Find me out. Here are my works. Find me out. Discover in the wondrous world which I have made the way to worship me acceptably. I give you space enough to do it. There are data enough. Behold the clouds, the earth, the stars. I give you time enough. I will give you uh, 4,000 years, and I will not interfere. But you shall do as you will with your own world. I will give you men in abundance, for I will make great minds and vast whom you shall call lords of earth. Or you shall have orators, you shall have philosophers. Find me out, O reason. Find me out, O wisdom. Discover my nature, if you can. Find me out unto perfection, if you're able. And if you cannot, then shut your mouth forever. And then, then I will teach you that the wisdom of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Yea, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And how did the reason of man work out the problem? How did wisdom perform her feat? 
look upon the heathen nations. There you see the result of wisdom's researches. In the time of Jesus Christ, you might have beheld the earth covered with the slime of pollution, a Sodom on a large scale, corrupt, filthy, depraved, indulging in vices which we dare not mention, reveling in lusts too abominable even for our imagination to dwell upon for a moment. And we find the men prostrating themselves before blocks of wood and stone, adoring 10,000 gods more vicious than themselves. We find, in fact, that reason wrote out her own depravity with a finger covered with blood and filth, and that she forever cut herself out from all her glory by the vile deeds she did. She would not worship God. She would not bow down to him who is clearly seen, but she worshipped any creature, the reptile that crawled, the, the crocodile, the viper, Everything might be a god, but not, forsooth, the god of heaven. Vice might be made into a ceremony. The greatest crime might be exalted into a religion, but true worship she knew nothing of. Poor reason, poor wisdom, how are you fallen from heaven like Lucifer, you son of the morning? You are lost. You have written out your conclusion, but it is a conclusion of consummate folly. After that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Wisdom had had its time and time enough. It had done its all, and that was little enough. It had made the, the world worse than it was before it stepped upon it. And now, says God, foolishness shall overcome wisdom. Now ignorance, as you call it, shall sweep away your science. Now humble, childlike faith shall crumble to the dust all the colossal systems your hands have piled. He calls his army. Christ puts his trumpet to his mouth, and up come the warriors, clad in fishermen's garb, with the brogue of the, the Lake of Galilee. Poor humble mariners, here are the warriors, O wisdom, that are to confound you. These are the heroes who shall overcome your proud philosophers. These men are to plant their standard upon the ruined walls of your strongholds and bid them fall forever. These men and their successors are to exalt a gospel in the world which you may laugh at as absurd, which you may sneer at as folly, but which shall be exalted above the hills, and shall be glorious even to the highest heavens. Since that day, God has always raised up successors of the apostles. I claim to be a successor of the apostles, and not by any lineal descent, but because I have the same role and charter as any apostle and am as much called to preach the gospel as Paul himself. If not as much owned in the conversion of sinners, yet in a measure blessed of God, and therefore here I stand, foolish as Paul might be, foolish as Peter or any of those fishermen, 
but still with the might of God I grasp the sword of truth, coming here to preach Christ and him crucified unto the Jews, a stumbling block, unto the Greeks, foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Before I enter upon our text, let me very briefly tell you what I believe preaching Christ and him crucified is. My friends, I do not believe it is preaching Christ and him crucified to give our people a, a batch of philosophy every Sunday morning and evening and neglect the truth of this holy book. I do not believe it is preaching Christ and him crucified to leave out the main cardinal doctrines of the word of God and preach a religion which is all a, a mist and a haze without any definite truths, whatever. I take it that man does not preach Christ and him crucified who can get through a sermon without mentioning Christ's name once. Nor does that man preach Christ and him crucified who leaves out the Holy Spirit's work, who never says a word about the Holy Ghost, so that indeed the hearers might say, we do not so much as know whether there be a Holy Ghost. And I have my own private opinion that there is no such a thing as preaching Christ and him crucified unless you preach what nowadays is called Calvinism. I have my own ideas, and those I always state boldly. It is a nickname to call it Calvinism. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. I do not believe we can preach the gospel if we do not preach justification by faith without works, nor unless we preach the sovereignty of God in his dispensation of grace, nor unless we exalt the electing, unchangeable, eternal, immutable, conquering love of Jehovah, nor do I think we can preach the gospel unless we base it upon the peculiar redemption which Christ made for his elect and chosen people. Nor can I comprehend a gospel which lets saints fall away after they are called and suffers the children of God to be burned in the fires of damnation after having believed. Such a gospel I abhor. The gospel of the Bible is not such a gospel as that. We preach Christ and him crucified in a different fashion. And to all gainsayers, we reply, we have not so learned Christ. Well, there are three things in the text. First, a gospel rejected. Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Secondly, a gospel triumphant unto those which are called, both Jews and Greeks. And thirdly, a gospel admired. It is to them who are called the power of God and the wisdom of God. So first we have here a gospel rejected. One would have imagined that when God sent his gospel to men, all men would meekly listen and humbly receive its truths. We should have thought that God's ministers had but to proclaim that life is brought to light by the gospel and that Christ is come to save sinners and every ear would be attentive, every eye would be fixed, and every heart would be wide open to receive the truth. We should have said, judging favorably of our fellow creatures, 
that there would not exist in the world a monster so vile, so depraved, so polluted, as to put so much as a stone in the way of the progress of truth. We could not have conceived such a thing, and yet that conception is the truth. When the gospel was preached, instead of being accepted and admired, one universal hiss, hiss, went up to heaven. Men could not bear it. Its first preacher they dragged to the brow of a hill and would have sent him down headlong. Yea, they did more. They nailed him to the cross. There they let him languish out his dying life in agony such as no man has borne since. All his chosen ministers have been hated and abhorred by worldlings. Instead of being listened to, they have been scoffed at, treated as if they were the offscouring of all things and the very scum of mankind. Look at the holy men in the old times, how they were driven from city to city, persecuted, afflicted, tormented, stoned to death wherever the enemy had power to do so. Those friends of men, those real philanthropists, who came with hearts big with love and hands full of mercy and lips pregnant with celestial fire and souls that burned with holy influence, those men were treated as if they were spies in the camp, as if they were deserters from the common cause of mankind, as if they were enemies and not, as they truly were, the best of friends. Do not suppose, my friends, that men like the gospel any better now than they did then. There is an idea that you are growing better. I do not believe it. You're growing worse. In many respects, men may be better, outwardly better, but the heart within is still the same. The human heart of today, dissected, would be just like the human heart a thousand years ago. The gall of bitterness within that breast of yours is just as bitter as the gall of bitterness in that of Simon of old. We have in our hearts the same latent opposition to the truth of God, and hence we find men even as of old who scorn the gospel. I shall, in speaking of the gospel rejected, endeavor to point out the two classes of persons who shall equally despise the truth. The Jews make it a stumbling block. The Greeks account it foolishness. Now, these two very respectable gentlemen of the Jew and the Greek, I'm not going to make these ancient individuals the object of my condemnation, but I look upon them as members of a great parliament, representatives of a great constituency, and I shall attempt to show that if all the race of Jews were cut off, there would be still a great number in the world who would answer to the name of Jews, to whom Christ is a stumbling block. And that if Greece were swallowed up by some earthquake and ceased to be a nation, there would still be the Greek, unto whom the gospel would be foolishness. I shall simply introduce the Jew and the Greek and let them speak a moment to you. 
in order that you may see the gentlemen who represent you, the, the representative men, the persons who stand for many of you, who as yet are not called by divine grace. Well, the first is the Jew. But to him, the gospel is a stumbling block. A respectable man the Jew was in his day. All formal religion was concentrated in his person. He went up to the temple very devoutly. He tithed all he had, even to the mint and the cumin. You would see him fasting twice in the week, with a face all marked with sadness and sorrow. If you looked at him, he had the law between his eyes. Yeah, there was the phylactery and the, the borders of his garments of amazing wit, that he might never be supposed to be a Gentile dog, that no one might ever conceive that he was not a Hebrew of pure descent. He had a holy ancestry. He came of a pious family. A right good man he was, and he could not endure those Sadducees at all. He had no religion. He was thoroughly a religious man. He stood up for his synagogue. He would not have that temple on Mount Gerizim. Oh, he, he could not bear the Samaritans. He had no dealings with them. He was a religionist of the first order, a man of the, the very finest kind, a specimen of a man who is a moralist and who loves the ceremonies of the law. Accordingly, when he heard about Christ, he asked who Christ was. Oh, the son of a carpenter. Ah, the son of a carpenter. Yes, yes, and his mother's name was Mary, and his father's name Joseph. Well, that of itself is presumption enough, he said. Positive proof, in fact, that he cannot be the Messiah. And what does he say? Well, he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Uh, that won't do. Moreover, he says, it, it's not by the works of the flesh that any man can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, the Jew ties a double knot in his phylactery at once. He thought he would have the borders of his garment made twice as broad. He bowed to a Nazarene? No, no. And, and if so much as a disciple crossed the street, he thought the place polluted and would not tread in his steps. Do you think he would give up his old father's religion, the religion which came from Mount Sinai, that old religion that lay in the ark and the overshadowing cherubim, he give that up? Not he. A vile impostor. That is all Christ was in his eyes. He thought so. A stumbling block to me. I, I cannot hear about it. I, I will not listen to it. Accordingly, he turned a deaf ear to all the preacher's eloquence and listened not at all. Farewell, old Jew. You sleep with your fathers, and your generation is a wandering race still walking the earth. Farewell, I, I have done with you. Alas, poor wretch, that Christ, who was your stumbling block, shall be your judge, and on your head shall be that loud curse, his blood be on us and on our children." But I'm going to find out, Mr. Jew, right here in Exeter Hall, persons who answer to his description, to whom Jesus Christ is a stumbling block. 
Let me introduce you to yourselves, some of you. You were of a pious family too, were you not? Yes, and, and you have a religion which you love. You love it so far as the chrysalis of it goes, the outside, the covering, the husk. You would not have one rubric altered, nor one of those dear old arches taken down, nor the stained glass removed for all the world. And any man who should say a word against such things, you would set down as a heretic at once. Or perhaps you do not go to such a place of worship, but you love some plain old meeting house where your forefathers worshipped, called a, a dissenting chapel. Ah, it is a beautiful, plain place. Yes, you, you love it. You love its ordinances. You love its exterior. And if anyone spoke against that place, how vexed you would feel. You think that what they do there, they ought to do everywhere. In fact, your church is a model one. The place where you go is exactly the sort of place for everybody. And if I were to ask you why you hope to go to heaven, you would perhaps say, uh, because I'm a Baptist, or because I'm an Episcopalian, or whatever other sect you belong to. There is yourself. I know Jesus Christ will be to you a stumbling block. If I come and tell you that all your going to the house of God is good for nothing, if I tell you that all those many times you've been singing and praying all pass for nothing in the sight of God because you're a hypocrite and a formalist, if I tell you that your heart is not right with God and that unless it is so, all the external is good for nothing, I know what you will say. I shan't hear that young man again. It's a stumbling block. If you had stepped in anywhere where you had heard formalism exalted, if you had been told, this must you do and this other must you do, and then you will be saved, why, well, you would highly approve of it. But how many are there externally religious? With those characters, you could find no fault. But who have never had the regenerating influence of the Holy Ghost, who never were made to lie prostrate on their face before Calvary's cross, who never turned a wishful eye to yonder Savior crucified, who never put their trust in him who was slain for the sons of men. They love a superficial religion. But when a man talks deeper than that, they set it down, can't. You you may love all that is external about religion, just as you may love a man for his clothes, caring nothing for the man himself. If so, I know you are one of those who reject the gospel. Oh, you will hear me preach, and while I speak about the externals, you will hear me with attention. While I plead for morality, and I argue against drunkenness, or show the heinousness of Sabbath-breaking, all well and good, but if once I say, except ye be converted and become as little children, you can in no wise enter into the kingdom of God. If once I tell you that you must be elected of God, that you must be purchased with the Savior's blood, that you must be converted by the Holy Ghost, you will say he's a fanatic. Away with him. Away with him. We don't want to hear that anymore. Christ crucified is to the Jew the ceremonialist, a stumbling block. But there's another specimen of this Jew 
to be found, is thoroughly orthodox in his sentiments. As for forms and ceremonies, he, he thinks nothing about them. He goes to a place of worship where he learns sound doctrine. He will hear nothing but what is true. He likes that we should have good works and morality. He's a good man, and no man can find fault with him. Here he is, regular in his Sunday pew. In the market he walks before men in all honesty, so you would imagine. Ask him about any doctrine, and he can give you a disquisition upon it. In fact, he could write a treatise upon anything in the Bible and a great many things beside. He knows almost everything. And here, up in this dark attic of his head, his religion has taken up its abode. He has a best parlor down in his heart, but his religion never goes there. Uh, the parlor is shut against it. He has money in there, mammon, worldliness, or he has something else, self-love, pride. Perhaps he loves to hear experiential preaching. He admires it all. In fact, he loves anything that is sound. But then he has not any sound in himself, or, or rather, it is all sound and there is no substance. He likes to hear true doctrine, but it never penetrates his inner man. You never see him weep. Preach to him about Christ crucified, a glorious subject, and you never see a tear roll down his cheek. Tell him of the mighty influence of the Holy Ghost. He admires you for it, but he never had the hand of the Holy Spirit on his soul. Tell him about communion with God, plunging into Godhead's deepest sea and being lost in its immensity. The man loves to hear, but he never experiences. He has never communed with Christ. And accordingly, when once you begin to strike home, when you lay him on the table, take out your dissecting knife, begin to cut him up and show him his own heart, let him see what it is by nature and what, what it must become by grace. And the man starts. He, he cannot stand that. He wants none of that. Christ received in the heart and accepted. Albeit that he loves it enough in the head, tis to him a stumbling block, and he casts it away. Well, do you see yourselves here, my friends? See yourselves as others see you? See yourselves as God sees you? For so it is. Here be many to whom Christ is as much a stumbling block now as ever he was. O oh, you formalists, I speak to you. O oh, you who have the nutshell but abhor the kernel. O oh, you who, who like the trappings and the dress but care not for that fair virgin who is clothed therewith. O oh, you who admire the paint and the tinsel but abhor the solid gold, I speak to you. And I ask you, does your religion give you solid comfort? Can you stare death in the face with it and say, I know that my Redeemer liveth? Can you close your eyes at night, singing as your vesper song, I to the end must endure, as sure as the earnest is given? Can you bless God for affliction? Can you plunge in as you are, and, and swim through all the floods of trial? Can you march triumphant through the lion's den, laugh at affliction, and bid defiance to hell, can you? No, 
No, your gospel is an effeminate thing, a thing of words and sounds, not of power. Cast it from you, I beseech you. It is not worth your keeping. And when you come before the throne of God, you will find it will fail you, and fail you so that you shall never find another. For lost, ruined, destroyed, you shall find that Christ, who is now a stumbling block, will be your judge. I have found out the Jew, and I have now to discover the Greek. No, he's a person of quite a different exterior to the Jew. As to the phylactery, to him it is all rubbish. As to the broad-hemmed garment, he despises it. He does not care for the forms of religion. He has an intense aversion, in fact, to broad-brimmed hats or to everything which looks like outward show. He appreciates eloquence. He admires a smart saying. He loves a quaint expression. He likes to read the last new book. He is a Greek. To him, the gospel is uh, foolishness. The Greek is a gentleman found in most places nowadays, manufactured sometimes in colleges, constantly made in schools, produced everywhere. He's on the exchange, in the market. He keeps a shop, rides in a carriage. He is a noble gentleman. He, why, he is everywhere, even in court. He is thoroughly wise. Ask him anything, and he knows it. Ask for a quotation from any of the old poets or anyone else, and he can give it to you. If you are a Mohammedan and you plead the claims of your religion, he will hear you very patiently. But if you're a Christian and talk to him of Jesus Christ, stop your cant, he says. I don't want to hear anything about that. This Grecian gentleman believes all philosophy except the true one. He studies all wisdom except the wisdom of God. He seeks all learning except spiritual learning. He loves everything except that which God approves. He likes everything which man makes and nothing which comes from God. It is foolishness to him. Confounded foolishness. You have only to discourse about one doctrine in the Bible. He shuts his ears. He wishes no longer for your company. Company, it is foolishness. I've met this gentleman a great many times. Once when I saw him, he told me he did not believe in any religion at all. And when I said I, I did, and I had a hope that when I died, I should go to heaven, he said he, he dared say it was very comfortable, but he did not believe in religion and that he was sure it was best to live as nature dictated. Another time he spoke well of all religions and believed they were very good in their place and all true. And he had no doubt that if a man were sincere in in any kind of religion, he would be all right at last. I told him I did not think so, and that I believe there was but one religion revealed of God, the religion of God's elect, the religion which is the gift of Jesus. He then said I was a bigot and wished me good morning. It was to him foolishness. He had nothing to do with me at all. He either liked no religion or every religion. Another time I held him by the coat button and I discussed with him a little about faith. He said, it's all very well. I, I believe that is true Protestant doctrine. But presently I said something about election and he said, I don't like that. Many people have preached that and, and turned it to bad account. 
I then hinted something about free grace, but that he could not endure. It was to him foolishness. He was a polished Greek and and thought that if he were not chosen, he ought to be. He never liked that passage, God hath chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise and the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. He thought it was very discreditable to the Bible. And when the book was revised, he had no doubt it would be cut out. To such a man, for he is here this morning, very likely come to hear this reed shaken of the wind, uh, um, I have to say this. Ah, you wise man, uh, full of worldly wisdom. Your wisdom will, will stand you here, but what will you do in the swellings of Jordan? Philosophy may do well for you to lean upon while you walk through this world, but the river is deep, and you will need something more than that. If you have not the arm of the Most High to hold you up in the flood and cheer you with promises, you will sink, man. With all your philosophy, you will sink. With all your learning, you will sink and be washed into that awful ocean of eternal torment where you shall be forever. Ah, Greeks, it may be foolishness to you, but you shall see the man, your judge, and then you shall rue the day that ere you said that God's gospel was foolishness. We're going to cut it right there. Next time we'll talk about the gospel triumphant, where he says, unto us who are called both Jews and Greeks, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. I love reading these messages. I, I love, if you weren't even listening, I'd be here listening to myself read this. It is so edifying. I trust that you're being blessed too. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Remember to look around the website. There's so many things here. Check it out, will you? Lord willing, we'll get to talk again real soon. Bye-bye.